Well, thanks for the very warm welcome, and a very warm welcome to you if you are new, just a visitor, maybe a guest here this morning. Um, and it's great to see so many people when uh, the sun is shining. sun is definitely shining this morning in more ways than one. Uh, amen. Uh, I wonder, have you ever seen those videos where someone wakes up from dental surgery and uh, the anesthetic is still very much in the system and uh, it's so strong that the part of the brain responsible for rational thought and speech has gone completely numb. And uh, have you seen those videos, anyone? It's amazing what is locked away in our subconscious that comes out when the brain is slightly numbed. Uh, I've recently started counseling um, as a way of processing some of the challenges and some of the events and some of the pain in my childhood. Um, And through that process, I've realized that actually there's large parts of my childhood that I I actually can't remember, can't put in sequence in a timeline, just kind of really like, really vague and and really blurred. Um, And I, I don't know about you, but like sometimes if I look back at my life, if I look back at that kind of very hazy timeline of, of, experience, of experiencing challenge after challenge, sometimes when I look back on my life, a lot of it feels like an injustice. Like, you know, we ask the question, or at least I do, why did this happen to me? What about, what about them? Why didn't I get their life? Like, they're just so much happier less stressed, they look like they've got it all together, and life just, life just hasn't worked out for me the way that I hoped it would. Maybe I did something wrong then. Maybe, maybe God doesn't love me as much. Maybe I'm just not worth as much, and so I'm, I'm just not going to give all of myself to him or to other people. And so what happens is we try to live life on our own, becoming self-sufficient, in control, and and putting the defenses up to guard against the threat of mistrust or against disappointment again. And so this numbness creeps in where we don't feel God's love or even the love from other people, and so we start to doubt it. And like, like a dead arm or like anesthetic at the dentist, when something is numb, and the more numb something is, the less able we are to respond. We are starting a brand new series today. I believe it's a six-part series, and we are in the book of Malachi. The subtitle here is The Last Minor, uh, because Malachi is one of what we call the one of the 12 minor prophets. So these minor prophets we find in the Old Testament, and and all 12 of them stretch over a period of about 400 years, about the time uh, from Shakespeare to us today. Um, And so Malachi offers actually no identifying information about himself. We, We know very little about him. In Hebrew, the name comes from a word simply meaning my messenger. And so as we dive into scripture, into God's word this morning, we're in a period about 400 years before Christ, around the year 430 BC, 
when the Persian Empire ruled the Promised Land. So I'd love us to turn together, if you've got a Bible on you, uh, phone, or in front of you in a chair, it is going to come up on the screen. Um, And we're in Malachi, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, all together today. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And my title here for this passage is Israel Doubts God's Love. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, it's a good job that I love a challenge because what on earth is happening here? And hopefully, will be able to help us a little bit today to understand this passage in Malachi. So to do that, uh, I'm going to ask your forgiveness because I'm going to take a few minutes just to give us some context, just so that we know where we are in this this. Uh, big story that God is writing in, in the Bible um, to, to bring us up to, uh, to Malachi. So, so in the beginning, literally in the beginning in Genesis, God creates a good creation, and he loves his creation. And he says that if we trust that that's how God feels about us, then we're able to lay our lives down because we have everything we need in him. But if we don't trust that story, then we're going to act out of fear and self-interest and self-preservation. So we discover that God is looking for partners. And when we're about to lose hope in the story, we meet someone called Abraham. And this becomes the family of God. Now, this family isn't perfect like any family, I'm sure, here today. This family is dysfunctional, but they lean into trusting the story of God And they trust that his love actually does change everything. And they choose to see the world through his eyes. And so this kind of sets up two narratives and two ways in which we live in this life. The first is kingdom, and this is God's way. This is uh, living through right relationship with people and and living in peace and and something, something called shalom, where where we're actually like living as the people that God has created us to be in the world around us. And then the other is empire, which is where we, we just believe that we don't have enough, we're not enough, we're not good looking enough, we don't have enough money, and so we live out of that fear, that fear and that place of, of self-sufficiency. And so, so God's people who, who eventually like through the series of of the story God is writing in Scripture, become part of God's kingdom that he's advancing in the world. 
but God's people find themselves living under empire. And we see this in Egypt. Um, If you know the story of the Israelites in Egypt, um, but God rescues his people from this empire. And so when the people are rescued, they go out into the desert and the people of God are given the law, the Ten Commandments, but they break the law. And so sacrifices are provided by priests, but the priests themselves become corrupt. So then the judges say, well, let's just do what's right in our own eyes, but that doesn't work. So God says, all right, well, pick a king, your tallest, strongest, most handsome guy, but that king becomes selfish. Well, we'll give prophets to the kings, and the kings will learn what to do from the prophets. Sounds great, except the people kill the prophets, or they don't listen to them. And we begin to understand that through the course of millennia, God is saying to all of us that we need a better lawkeeper, a better judge, a better sacrifice, a better king, a better priest, a better prophet. Not this, not this, not this, but this. And so Malachi is one of these prophets that comes to tell the people what God is saying and what he requires of them. So he's the last prophet, and this is the last book of the Old Testament. The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament, 39 books, and the New Testament, 27 books, the New Testament beginning with the life of Jesus. And so Malachi lived about 100 years after the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem from another exile in Babylon. And the temple was destroyed. And this is now well over a thousand years after Abraham's era. And the Israelites, by the way, these people of God, they're descendants of Jacob. This is God's partnered family uh, because Jacob was Abraham's son. And so there were 12 tribes from 12 sons that eventually formed a nation who are inheritors of the rich tradition of the Jewish people. And so Malachi is among these people after this exile. The people are now back in Jerusalem, and they've been living there for some time. The temple has been rebuilt, but things are not going well. When they returned, their hopes were high, that they would return and rebuild their lives and the temple and the promises of the prophets before them would come true and the Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. Because the Israelites that populated the city were just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors. The the fervor of those returning, those early returning Israelites had given way and the people are feeling indifferent and complacent and they're filled with a total apathy for the things of God. So this has led to corruption and lethargy among the people. They're not white hot with passion, remembering this historic and heroic past, even though God continually reminds his people of the true story that they've, that they've been through, how they've experienced him, how he's rescued them from Egypt and from Babylon reminds them of the family that they're from. And he says that if you remember where you came from, you'll remember how good I am and that I'm putting the world back together through you. But instead, they're offering stolen, 
sickly sacrifices. They're calling evil good. Divorce rate is rampant. People are marrying idol worshippers. They're not giving or they're just giving like this small amount, the leftovers. They're minimizing God's ways. They're redefining what the temple and God's people should be about. They're living in a time where social justice issues are neglected and God's word is disregarded. Sound familiar? And so Malachi came at a time when the Israelites had the advantage and the weight of this glorious history on their side of God continually reminding them of how he's come through for them. They knew the rewards of faithfulness and they had also experienced the punishment and the judgment of wandering in the desert and the shame of exile from the promised land. But even then, with all that perspective, these men and women are struggling to believe that God loved them. They focused on their circumstances and they refused to account for their own sinful nature. These people have turned away from God, leaving themselves under judgment and in need of salvation. And so God directs Malachi, this final prophet, as this final book of the Old Testament, to call them to return to God, to get their priorities straight, because he has loved them. He's a gracious God. And if they don't, there will be consequences because he's a just God, keeping his vision and promises. And so this book anticipates the need for an ultimate salvation from ourselves and for God to come and rescue us once and for all himself. So today, this indifference, this spiritual apathy, this cynicism towards the goodness of God that these people were living and feeling back then is nothing new to us. You know, for me, and I'm sure maybe for a couple of people here, sometimes praying and spending time with God is just the last thing we want to do, right? And so we find ourselves in front of Netflix again, maybe binging the latest episodes of Stranger Things or, I don't know, Downton Abbey that Joe and I, my wife, just recently worked through. We find ourselves just mindlessly scrolling, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or the newspaper. Um, and, and we close, I mean, I, I do this all the time. We close Instagram only to open it again, right? Anyone else do that? Yeah. Um, or maybe, maybe the weather's nice. So maybe I'll just give church or life group a miss and head down the beach instead. Maybe you just feel like you're going through the motions and maybe, maybe you're single and it's hard. And, and you say, well, you don't know how hard it is. And so you're just hooking up with people. Maybe you're sleeping around. And, and maybe they offended me. And so I'm just not going to talk to them anymore. And maybe just life didn't turn out the way that I wanted. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to some of it and, and only give God this much. This is the root of doubt. 
when we fall out of rhythm, out of relationship, out of community, we lose trust and we doubt that people are for us. And then we conflate people with God and we lose faith. And this changes the direction of our hearts from towards God to away from him as we deconstruct what we thought we knew. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And this is the question that our world asks today. How can there be a good God if? And I'm reminded of Stephen Fry, if you saw that interview, I think it was the BBC a few years ago, and he goes on this tirade of all the, the like, you know, he just picks the worst examples of evil and suffering in the world. And, and he asks this question, how can you say there's a good God when? And like us, the Israelites, they look around at their situation and the economy is bad and energy prices are high. They're barely making ends meet and there's war and someone close to us passed away. These are the hardest things. And God, by the way, never trivializes them. In fact, when we read the whole of Scripture, the whole story, the whole meta-narrative of the Bible, God gives over way more time to the painful emotions, to the times of lament than he does for the times when things are good. See, these people living in 432 B.C., they couldn't see that actually God had restored them, that he had given them the land. He says, well, you've been able to rebuild. You might not have everything exactly the way that you like it, but you're here because I love you. But we say, if you loved us, things would be better for us. We look around at our lives and we say, well, God, how have you loved us? Where's the evidence? What about this thing that happened and this thing and this thing that I'm in and going through right now? We want proof of God's love when we experience setbacks in career, in our health, in relationships, in the direction of our life. We say, God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have let me go through this pain and suffering And actually, this is one of the questions that I've been asking as I've been journeying through counseling. I want to share a picture with you that God gave me two weeks ago in our staff meeting um, uh, in the morning on a Monday morning. I was in a time of worship. I just had the Bible open in front of me and, you know, I was doing that thing where we read it and we're not really reading it and we're just kind of reading it over and over again and it's not really going in. My thoughts were elsewhere. And, and God, God genuinely gave me this picture in this moment. And this is completely unrehearsed, but I, I think hopefully maybe this is going to speak to someone. And so uh, God showed me this picture. I'm putting gloves on because I'm using fire. Yes. God gave me this picture, right, of, um, of this piece of metal. Um, and, and this piece of metal uh, is me, and maybe it's you. 
And so there's been times in life where things just get intense. The temperature gets turned up, and things are just really, really hot, and just really, like, really hard to deal with, and, like, the pressure is on, and you just feel like you just need some time out just to cool down. And then, and then you find yourself just placed against a hard surface. And then something else happens, like as, as if things weren't bad enough. And like, you know, it's always when we're in a rush or we're stressed that something else happens, right? And so maybe like in my life, in childhood, uh, one of my parents died. And that was really hard. And, uh, and then my other parent the relationship is just really difficult and there's a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. And then, and then I find myself um, in many ways like raising my two sisters younger than me. And, and that's just really hard, like taking responsibility at a young age. And then, and then I'm placed in a step family where there's like just more challenge and more trauma and, and more things to be exposed. And, and you just kind of feel squeezed again. And then you go into the workplace, and, um, and that's really challenging. And a few years ago, I was leading a church. When I started, there were two other pastors, and within a few months, I was the only pastor. And then, like, there's just huge transition and huge, like, huge challenges to overcome. And then the church burns down, so the fire's back. It's a true story. And, um, and so, so one thing after another, and then, and then recently, um, the closest thing to a parent that I've had in a long time, my father-in-law, he got sick, and then he died. And, and actually, like, everyone on my mum's side of my family, literally everyone has died. And then some good friends have died. And, like, things are just really hard at the moment. And so, so the picture God gave me was that, actually, this is me, right? But my identity, as a way of, like, just navigating life and moving forward, my identity was in the hard thing that I was placed against, and the hammer that just repeatedly keeps coming, and, and just one blow after the other, and in the fire. These are the things that actually I've, in some ways, I've placed my identity in. And this is really vulnerable, like, for me to share, because, you know, I've been processing some of this stuff recently. Um, but what I didn't see is that although I've placed my identity in those things, in the wrong things, this is who I am. And actually, when, when you take this and when you look at your life, and like, like God says to the Israelites, you need to remember what I've done in your history, but you need to see it through my eyes and not yours. Because when you do, God can create something beautiful. I think this is quite beautiful. Beautiful. Even as beautiful as this 
Alaskan Inuit Ulu. You can ask me about that at the end. Because something with a purpose could only be created through a process. I hope that speaks to someone today. Because God has spoken to me through that about where I place my identity. Okay, let's keep understanding this passage. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. God responds to this doubt of his love and where we go and place our identity in the wrong things. Here God is speaking about his judgment on Edom for their sin and rebellion. And so this word hate in our modern vernacular, when we use this word, when we use it towards another person, I think at the heart of it, we kind of, it means that we actually want the worst for someone, not the best for them. But in the Bible, this is really unhelpful, but in the Bible, this word is used in comparison between two things or two people, and it actually means simply to love less than. I'm going to illustrate that really briefly with two passages, and I apologize because they're not going to come up. Uh, But in Genesis 29, um, verses 30 to 31, we, we read this. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And then in another passage that maybe some of us are familiar with, this is Jesus speaking, and he says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So does God here mean you have to hope for the worst for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your brother, your sister, your co-worker, your your mum, your dad? No, of course not. In comparison to our love for God, all other human relationships should be seen as less than in our comparing. And so, so God is saying here that he's loved Edom less than Israel, Esau less than Jacob. So just a, a little bit of context on Jacob and Esau. So out of Jacob and Esau, these are the grandsons of Abraham, come two nations that we've just heard about. From Jacob, Israel, and from Esau, Edom. And God chose the promise of a son to bless all nations to come through Jacob. Why? Because Jacob cared about his future and about God. Esau cared about immediate pleasure. Jacob's attitude and determination is one of faith. This is what God is looking for. When we wrestle with him, we discover who we really are. Esau's attitude is one of works and self-trust and denying God. But this is not about Jacob and Esau. God is not against people. Malachi is writing 700 years after these brothers. This is about the people that descended 
from Esau. Because God is against sin and anything that doesn't bring life. Edom is consistently turning to evil. And we know that evil has a punishment. We know this from our our justice system. So this isn't just God losing his temper. This is a people who repeatedly keep rejecting God and leading Israel astray. We think that we don't need God. And so, at least for me, there have been times where I try and do life in my own strength, my own way. And God has to deal with that and deal with sin the same way that we deal with crime towards one another. Verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. We hear an echo of this when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will come to me and said, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. God is looking for partners. Like Jacob, people willing to wrestle, to go through the hard stuff, maybe even to walk with a limp to discover who God really is and who he's really created us to be, to discover that purpose through the process. Because we either say to God, thy will be done or my will be done. Or another way of saying that is we either say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done. Malachi is reacting to a people who say, we don't need God. There's no loving God. We can do whatever we want and become God ourselves. Do what makes you happy. Sounds a lot like our time. We're just in a different Persia. We as humanity are increasingly rejecting God. And in terms of the way that that we as human beings have responded to authority over time, authority used to be seen in Scripture. And then with the age of enlightenment, the age of reason in the 18th century, it was science. And today, it's self. Empires rise and fall, and new technologies emerge, but the human heart hasn't changed in our modern day than it had in ancient Israel. No matter how great we think we are, we are not our own savior. If we depend on ourselves, we've seen what happens in history. It's a dead end. You see, going through the motions and our sin and the ways that we walk away from God and away from community and away from the love of people, it numbs us to the unearned and unconditional love of God. The answer to our sometimes, and and I'm preaching to myself here as well, to our spiritual apathy towards God is to understand again 
God's grace through the cross. That on the cross, Jesus received this destruction, this wrath of God. He was treated as an Edom so that we can be shielded from what we actually deserve and instead you and I can be loved as Israel. Israel didn't get what they deserved. Now, they weren't a perfect people. They were dysfunctional. But because their hearts were to come back to God, even though they needed a lot of help, they get the pure grace of God. And so on the cross, Jesus died as sin, not just for us, but as us. You know, there is going to be a judgment of all people everywhere. And the opportunity for you today is that you can be adopted into this family of God, to come from darkness into light, to come from death into life, to be with God and not apart from him. There was a British sailor by the name of Frank Jenner, who after the Second World War, he found himself uh, in Australia, and uh, he was a, a little bit of um, he was a little bit of a toe rag. Don't know why that's the word that comes to mind, but he uh, yeah he was just a, a little bit wayward, and um, and so anyway he he like kind of deserted the the military, the navy um, off of the the ship that, that docked in Australia at the end of the war, and he 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 made a new life in Australia. And um, God had given him a heart for evangelism. And actually, I, I want to encourage you to look up this story because it's this crazy story and there's these most bizarre links to Bournemouth where we are right now. But his name was Frank Jenner and this has become known as the Frank Jenner question where as this evangelist, he would step out of this doorway on this street in Sydney called George Street and he would step out of this doorway and he would ask this question to people passing by. If you were to die tonight, where would you be? In heaven or in hell? If you were to die tonight, where would you be? In heaven or in hell? With God or apart from him? God knows when you're going to die. Have you ever thought about that? Every 24 hours, 150,000 people die. And we all think that death is something that happens to other people until it comes closer. Death shows us that God is serious about sin. He has to deal with it, but he wants everyone to come into his love. So my father-in-law, over the the years that I got to know him, uh, we would have conversation after conversation where you know he didn't know Jesus, but he just had so many questions and so much wrestling about faith, and uh, and it, you know it was always light-hearted, but underneath that there was real depth. Like he was really searching, but then he'd get a bit close and he'd kind of back off and he'd run away, and so this went on for several years. And you know, like all the all the apologetics and the late night, I'm kind of like you know researching to try and answer his questions really well. And there was one night about a year ago that uh, my wife Joe and I, we were, we were talking with him and, um, and we're having this conversation again. It's a few hours in, he's had a few beers and, and it gets as close as it's ever got that actually all the, all the intellectual questions we have about how can there be a good God if 
And how can you say there's a loving God when? Actually, what it came down to was that he couldn't forgive other people for things that they'd done to him. And he believed that other people, and certainly God, could never forgive him for some things that he had done. And so he became aware of, of his sin and, and about the things that he's done in his life, and that became the obstacle. But when facing death just a few months ago, he came to faith. And we're all facing death. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, how will you do on Judgment Day? None of us is perfect. Often we think that we can cut a deal with the judge because we think that the judge is just like us, but he judges perfectly. You see, we broke the law and Jesus paid the fine. He signed it in his blood when he said, it is finished. I have loved you, says the Lord. And when we look at any other religion, it says, if I obey, God will love me. It starts with me. That what I do dictates how much I'm accepted by God. But only in Christianity does it start with God's love, which is unconditional. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we come to a close, I want you to imagine that you're in debt. This is a huge debt of several hundred thousand pounds that you owe to the government. Maybe it's your current energy bills. Maybe it's just two months of petrol. <laughs> but you're in absolute turmoil. Like, the, the bailiffs are going to be at the door. Like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, I'm back in the furnace. I'm back being hit with this hammer again. Like, what am I going to do? There's no way that I can pay this debt off myself. And you find out that a friend has paid it off. You see, the amount of debt determines your response to this friend. If it's just a couple hundred pounds, you'd say, hey, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, I owe you one. Let's grab a beer. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pay you back in a couple of months. Thanks a lot. But if you found out that they paid off a debt that you could never pay yourself, you would fall at their feet and say, I owe you everything. The debt on your life has been paid. We broke God's law, but Jesus pays the fine. Even though you're guilty, God can let you go because someone paid your fine. God legally takes the death sentence off you. He forgives your sins. He dismisses your case, all because Jesus paid the fine in your place. This is what happened on the cross, and he did it for you today. And then he rose from the dead, so we rise from death with him. Death is no longer the end, and he grants us everlasting life as a free gift, not because we're good, but because he's good. And he offers us life in all of its fullness, which starts today. All you have to do is repent of your sin, like my father-in-law did. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. In the words of Ray Comfort, trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. 
you will see it with your own eyes. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Through Christ, who came to rescue us as the ultimate answer to God's attempt to rescue his people over years, a relationship with God is no longer confined to a specific people or a geographic area, but anyone globally. God loves you, and this is the remedy to maybe you're feeling like you're going through the motions or your spiritual apathy. When you really know God's love for you and what he's done for you, when you remember the ways that he's brought you through all of that stuff, we cannot remain cynical with apathy. And maybe this is just a reminder to you today. So how do we actually experience this love which transforms our life? Well, it's spending time with him, It's hearing and understanding truth. It's adopting spiritual practices. It's doing it in community with the Holy Spirit at work in you. So how do you need to hear more truth? How do you need to spend more time with God this week? What spiritual practices do you need to adopt? What communities do you need to be part of? What relationships need to be restored with people? And who are the people that can come around you to help you to invite the Holy Spirit to come and be at work in you. In the voice of Malachi, God loves you unconditionally, but he wants your heart fully and sincerely.